0: Welcome to Time and Tide, Nantucket's Maritime History Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Schwanfelder, Maritime Studies Instructor for Egan Maritime Institute. Listen along for stories from the high seas that rise from the depths of despair to the peak of human hope and salvation. This podcast is brought to you by Egan Maritime Institute. Through our programs and educational opportunities, We work to inspire the appreciation and preservation of Nantucket's maritime culture and seafaring legacy. Time and tide wait for no man. Hope everyone is well and staying safe out there. We are super excited to announce that we hit over 1,000 downloads since our launch. We've got some great feedback on the previous Lightship episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, remember to share with friends and family. Just a reminder as well, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Enjoy the show. Episode 5, The Great Gale of 1879. Today we travel back to the late 19th century when Nantucket Sound, located in between the major ports of New York and Boston, was one of the most heavily trafficked marine highways in the country. Before the construction of the Cape Cod Canal in 1916, thousands of sailing vessels, every year, bound on coastal and transatlantic routes, had one of two navigational decisions to make. First, was to take the longer, more exposed ocean route south of Nantucket and around the dangerous South Shoals, or second, take the shorter, relatively more sheltered passage through Nantucket Sound. Many vessels, especially those plying the northeastern coastal trade, chose the latter. However, Nantucket Sound is not without considerable hazards to navigation. The treacherous Muskegon Channel, Tuckernuck and Muskegon Shoals, and the Nantucket Bar lie to the west and to the south of the Sound, while to the east there sits a narrow passage between the Great Point of Nantucket and Monomoy Island off the southeast elbow of Cape Cod. All around this channel is a veritable maze of shoals, rips, and sandbars, which have seen many a shipwreck over the centuries. The greatest threat to mariners occurred during the winter and early spring seasons when violent storms blowing in a northerly direction arrived with little notice, catching ships off guard and running them aground on the shoals and the rips. Ships could be broken up in a matter of days or even hours in the pounding surf, with sailors facing great risk to life and limb because of the cold water and extreme weather. Many had only to cling to the rigging, pray, and wait for the life-saving crews from Nantucket to take action and come to their rescue. Such was the case in late March during the Great Gale of 1879, when eleven shipwrecks occurred around the island, and the bravery of Nantucket's volunteer lifesavers would be put to the ultimate test. On the night of March 31, 1879, a great gale with rain swept the shores of southeast New England, coming up the coast with little warning and maintaining a protracted fury for 24 hours. A dozen shipwrecks were the toll of this storm. The three-masted schooner Emma G. Edwards of Camden, New Jersey, loaded with coal for Boston, took the storm off Chatham on Cape Cod. All that day, she fought the gale beating around in the narrow confines of the Sound. At nightfall, driven dangerously near the shoals around Muskegat, she anchored off Tuckernuck Shoal. But her cable parted early in the evening, and in the blinding snow and terrific wind, she went on to the shoal, going over on her beam ends at the impact. The seas now washed clean across her decks, and the crew took refuge in the rigging, where they lashed themselves. The seas swept over the craft continuously, One by one, the crew lost their grips in the icy darkness and were washed away. Until only four remained. The steward, the mate, a son of the captain, and a man named Thomas Brown, a German sailor. When morning dawned on the second, only young Bryant and Brown remained alive. The steward having died from exposure, and the mate having been swept to his death. Captain Thomas F. Sansbury was informed by Billy Clark, the town crier, that four vessels were in distress off the West End. Together with a volunteer crew, Captain Sansbury left town on Tuesday morning for Maddocket, where they got a dory and rowed over to Tuckernuck. Pulling the Big Humane Society's boats from its house, Captain Sansbury launched it with a crew composed of Edwin Smith, John B. Dunham, Andrew Brooks, George S. Coffin, James C. Sansbury, Henry C. Coffin, and Marcus W. Dunham. The last survivor of that boat's crew, Marcus W. Dunham, told of the experience many years later. It blew a living gale on that day, he said. We launched a Humane Society's boat from the north end of Tuckernuck, where she was kept in a house. We had two men on a thwart, each man on an oar as we had to pull into the wind. The tops of the seas blew constantly into the boat, and we had to bail. Captain Sansbury was at the steering oar. Four schooners were in sight, all in distress. Rowing to windward, the men pulled the rescue boat to the JW Hall, the first schooner to windward, and took off four men. The next schooner approached, the Emma, was in less dangerous predicament than another craft which could be seen on her beam ends well offshore. The helpless schooner was the Emma G. Edwards, loaded with coal as were the others. It was a long, hard pull for the oarsmen, slowly but surely they came up to the Edwards. It was then that they found that of the two sailors who had survived the wreck, only one was still alive, Thomas Brown. He was quickly taken aboard the lifeboat, together with the frozen corpses of his shipmates, one of whom, the son of Captain Bryant, had been lashed to the mast. The rescue of the sole survivor was made possible by the heroism of George Coffin, who swam from the lifeboat to the schooner to make fast a temporary mooring line. By this time, the gale was so strong that the lifeboat was unable to make any headway back to Tuckernuck. Captain Sansbury decided to head for town. After a row of 11 miles, they crossed the bar and entered the harbor safely, the grim portion of their cargo being taken to the Humane House on South Water Street as a temporary morgue. Captain Thomas Sansbury did not tarry in town. He knew that the crews of the other wrecked schooners were facing another night of terror. Placing a whaleboat on a carrying rig, he had it hauled out to Matiket. Launching was quickly accomplished and the crew took him first to Tuckernuck and then over to Muskegat. Here, the volunteer crew of Lifesavers huddled together under the lee of their boat, awaiting the dawn. At daybreak, they pushed their boat through the breakers and rowed out to the schooner J.W. Hall. After taking off the crew, they continued to the schooner Emma, performing a similar rescue. At three o'clock in the afternoon of April 3, 1879, the whaleboat, dangerously loaded with its human cargo, reached shore safely. The entire stretch of the rescue work had taken 32 hours, hours of exposure, storm, darkness, toil at the oars, and hunger. The skill of the Nantucket's volunteer lifesavers was never more dramatically demonstrated, and the episode was long remembered by the townspeople. At various times during the week, bodies of the sailors lost in the wrecks came ashore on the island's north beach. The task of identification and notifying next of kin was the sad task of Dr. J.B. King, the county medical examiner. The particular boat's crew of volunteers taking part in these rescues were veterans of other similar feats. All received silver medals from the Humane Society and $25 each. During the same storm, another Tuckernuck crew was active, led by Isaac P. Dunham. A crew composed of George B. Coffin, Nathan Fish, Arthur C. Folger, and Joseph A. Hendricks went out to the wrecked schooners Andrew H. Edwards and Convoy and rescued the crews, bringing them back to Tuckernuck Island. The youngest man in Captain Sansbury's crew was Marcus Dunham. This was not the first rescue in which he had taken part. He also received awards from the Humane Society for being one of the crew rowing out in Muskeget Channel to board a man-of-war in distress and pilot her to safety. This was in 1876, when he was just 17 years old. Again in 1878, he was one of a crew rowing survivors off the wrecked schooner, John Farnham, off of Tuckernuck. To return to the March Gale of 1879, and the fleet of schooners caught at the eastern entrance to Nantucket Sound, Twelve vessels were able to skirt past Stonehorse and Great Round Shoals and slip down by Great Point along the east shore of Nantucket. As the wind came around more to the north, they took up their anchors and went around the shoulder of Sconset to anchor again under Tom Nevers' head. Late in the afternoon, three of these stood offshore and continued their voyage. The following morning, four others also got safely underway, while the others remained pitching and tossing at anchor. One of the schooners, the William D. Cargill, had lost her sails. The largest of the group, the brig Manzanilla, Captain John Rich, loaded with lumber from Calais, Maine, and bound for New York, by noon on April 2nd was making heavy weather of it and was finally run ashore at Low Beach. As the surf was too high to risk a launching, a line was thrown over the brig by means of a bluefish drail, so that a heavier line could be sent out with a bosun's chair attached, ingeniously rigged by the fishermen on shore. The entire crew was saved. A shift of the wind brought the vessels down towards Skonset. Here, a volunteer crew manned the Humane Society's lifeboat at the North Gully, rowing out to take the crew off the Cargill. The masts of the schooner were cut away, allowing her to ride more easily. She rowed out the storm, to be taken in tow by the steamer island home later in the week. Before the wind shifting, several fishermen planned to launch a dory at Nobodier and go to the aid of the Cargill, but after manning the dory they found the sea too rough for such a small craft. The schooner's convoy and Andrew H. Edwards, the latter a companion of the Emma G. Edwards, were cast on their beam ends on a shoal off the north side of Muskegon, rolled over and remained afloat during the night. Isaac P. Dunham, George B. Coffin, Arthur C. Folger, Nathan Fish, and Joseph A. Hendricks launched a boat from Muskeget and took off the crews of both vessels, for which deed they were presented twenty-five dollars apiece by the Massachusetts Humane Society. The schooners Jefferson Borden and American Chief went ashore at Muskeget, their crews remaining aboard. The schooners Alice Oakes and Daniel Britton dragged anchors and went ashore at Great Point. Both were successfully floated during the month. The storm was particularly disastrous because it had caught the coasting vessels unprepared for any gale of such proportions. In view of the severity of the gale, the work of the Lifesavers was all the more noteworthy. Captain Thomas Sansbury was presented a gold medal by the U.S. Congress, and his crew received Congressional silver medals for their exploits, together with $25 awards from the Humane Society. In the letter of presentation, Secretary John Sherman of the Treasury Department, in a concluding paragraph, stated the case in a few well-chosen words. Quote, The entire adventure occupied 32 hours. Its humanity and the courage and constancy with which it was conducted merit the highest praise, and it is with sincere pleasure that I transmit to you the medal which at once recognizes and commemorates an action altogether worthy. End quote. During this great gale of 1879, 11 vessels had been wrecked, but 40 of the mariners on board had been rescued. The humanity, courage, and constancy shown by the Nantucket lifesavers was a tribute to as gallant a group of volunteers as ever manned a lifeboat. Hope you all enjoyed the story of the great gale of 1879. Katie, what'd you think?
1: I thought that was an incredible story. I cannot imagine going out to sea during one of those storms in the middle of rough, freezing waters. And it's just an amazing story of bravery and courage once again.
0: Yeah, time was of the essence in these rescues. So they couldn't wait for the storm to pass. They had to go out in the teeth of the storm and uh, in pretty small rowboats.
1: It's just incredible. I was wondering more about the, you know, they said it took place within 32 hours. So I wanted to hear a little more about that timeline. And there's one part in particular that has stuck with me from listening to this episode. And it's the part where they're coming up to the Emma G. Edwards to perform the rescue. And I believe you said one of the rescuers jumps in the water, swims to the big boat to secure a line And I was wondering if you could talk more about that for myself and some listeners, just the details of what they did and how come they had to do that. I mean, that sounds absolutely crazy to me.
0: Yeah, just to paint the picture for you a little bit, this storm would have come out of nowhere. This is a late winter storm. Uh, There's a a massive amount of sailing traffic in Nantucket Sound at the time. It is a major for for vessels. We don't have the exact statistics, but probably blowing hurricane force, so, you know, winds in excess of 60 miles an hour, surf, cold temperatures, breaking waves, you name it. uh, It would be a pretty dire situation out in the shoals in the West End. The crew started in town when they heard that there were wrecks off of Muskegon. They hauled a dory from town in the center of the island, six miles west to Eel Point. From there, they rowed over to Tuckernuck Island, just under two miles away, went to the Massachusetts Humane Society house and got one of their lifeboats. It was an unmanned station, but it had a lifeboat at the hut. The crew got in the lifeboat, went out and surveyed the scene where there were the four wrecks, and they took the survivors off the wrecks that were most stranded at the time, when they got to the Emma G. Edwards, the ship probably in the most distress, the crew member had to take a line from the lifeboat, literally jump in the water and swim with that light line and connect it to the Emma G. Edwards. They couldn't get the lifeboat close enough to establish a tight mooring line in between the two ships to literally pull the boat up to the Emma Edwards, get the guy out of the rigging who literally lashed to the rigging and a couple of corpses as well, off the boat. And then they had to row 11 miles back into town. The conditions weren't favorable to return back via Tucker They had to go 11 miles eastward, back to town, drop off the survivors and the bodies. And then they got a whale boat and had it hauled back out to Madiket, launched it again from Madiket over to Muskegon. They got there at midnight, spent the night under the lifeboat, and then continued the rescue the, the next morning, saving the crews, and I believe they returned to Tuckernock on that second trip.
1: That's just incredible. And it was the same group of men that did these rescues back to back?
0: Yes. There was another lifeboat crew out there, but uh, Sansbury's crew performed the most daunting stretch of those two sort of rounds of saving these wrecks off of the West End off of Muskeget.
1: Wow. I mean, they must have just been very confident they could do it. I mean, that's a really intense thing to take on after having just done a rescue.
0: Absolutely. And these guys put their life on the line without a doubt. And I can't emphasize enough what the conditions must have been like. Like you said, they couldn't wait for the storm to subside. They had to go out in the middle of these conditions as well.
1: Wow, that is amazing. In a very small vessel. So brave. And in this episode, I hear you referring a lot to the Lifesavers as the volunteers of the Mass Humane Society. And I know they were the ones that had the huts and the lifeboats. I didn't realize before that they had a hut with a boat over on Tuckernuck. Thankfully, they did. did. And we've heard in past episodes a little bit about the presence of the United States Life Saving Service on Nantucket also. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the difference in the two and also their relationship and how are the decisions made, you know, in those moments on who would go out to the shipwrecks and perform the rescues.
0: Couple of good questions in there. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of questions. Yeah. Um, I just—it's—it's
1: it's so interesting to hear sort of how it all evolved, and you know, I'm assuming they worked really well together. Maybe it had to do with who was geographically closer.
0: That's part of it. Uh, the United States Life Saving Service was a federal body in the early 1870s, was just becoming an entity, and they still really were modeled after these smaller state-run volunteer societies. Which there were huts all around Nantucket. In eighteen seventy four they built the first life saving station down in Surfside, which actually exists to this day. It's where the youth hostel is. Um but that was at the time in eighteen seventy nine that was the only US life saving station on the island that was fully manned. And it's on the, the South Shore, south central part of the island. So
1: those those guys were on like a payroll sort of or they were yes, being paid they were
0: they were a fully manned crew. They patrolled there. the beaches, um, but at the time in 1879, if there were any wrecks out in Tuckernocker or Muskegon or out near Great Point, uh, the volunteers would still be very active. They would be the ones to really get called to the scene. Sansbury knew the West End very well. So it was him and his crew that knew the waters and where the boats were and, and how to perform the rescues.
1: And they were the volunteers for the mass humane. Exactly. And
0: they were volunteers. They were unpaid. They did if they performed feats of life-saving they were awarded medals and and monetary awards as they were in this case but partly because of all these wrecks in the late 19th century there was a u.s life-saving station established on Muskeget in 1882 so only three years after this rescue of which thomas sansbury was the first master and then there was one built the year after in 1883 out in cascada on the east side Wow. So by 1883, 4 years after this wreck you have the Surfside Life Saving Station on the South Shore, the Mosquito Life Saving Station out on the very west end of Muskegon Island and the Cascada Life Saving Station out near Great Point on the East End.
1: And that would mean that Sinsbury lived over in Mosquito. Muskega- he did, and I think he lived for a while,
0: while on Tuckernuck, uh but he was the the master, the station master of the Muskegon Life Saving Station, from 1883 to 1886, I believe.
1: And did he also have a team that would stay there with him periodically? Once
0: the once the life saving station was established and under the U- U.S. Life Saving Service, yes.
1: Wow, that must have just been an adventure in itself to live out at the station. Absolutely.
0: Uh, I've been over to Tucker a couple times. I have not been over to Muskegon yet. I know I've I've sailed by it and I've been by it in boats, and it is a pretty small
1: desolate yeah would lonely have been,
0: outpost out there yeah
1: might have been really peaceful I'm sometimes sure it
0: was very beautiful at times too but in the times of these these winter storms and um, especially in the the age of sail they would have seen a lot of
1: do you think these some of, of these stations things? were built in i mean i know overall as a result of more and more shipwrecks but maybe because of what all happened during this gale i mean it sounds like in such a short amount of time there were so many wrecks so many people needed help mm-hmm maybe that helped them see the need for more stations?
0: Yeah, from the, throughout the 1870s, really, and up into the 1880s, and I've read some other articles, more and more shipping traffic, more and more wrecks. The These were um, pretty ideal places, actually, to have a life-saving station. So they needed more, with more traffic, there were more wrecks. They needed a full-time life-saving service out on the east and the west side.
1: Wow! Thank God for all those brave, brave men that were saving absolutely.
0: People. Yep, and um, this was one of the more notable storms where many, many ships—you know—in this case, eleven shipwrecks, according to the sources, around the island in just a 24-hour period. But there were others, other storms where you would get a big storm, and these—the watchmen in the watchtowers, the beach patrols—would be on high alert, and you would kind of know that something would definitely be happening if one of these storms blew through.
1: And you said during this one they were able to save 40 people collectively?
0: In total. Um, that's not just Sansbury and his crew. That's the, the lifesavers on the west end. There were also the ships that were sheltered on the east side and a couple that got wrecked up close to shore on the south side. Some fishermen helped get off the boat. So in total for all of those those wrecks, 40 people were saved off vessels that that were disabled and not able to move on from the storm. A couple vessels just anchored and then moved on. But That's incredible. Yeah.
1: Well that's a great, great story for this episode. I feel like people are really gonna enjoy this one. I really enjoyed hearing more about it and just trying to picture again going out in those tiny boats that you know, in weather that has just wrecked these huge ships and just having the the guts to go out there and have the drive to save others is amazing.
0: Yeah. And I just think of the just sort of the visual image, you know. I spend some time fishing out in the West End and I kinda look out and just Imagine seeing these these massive sailing ships just I mean, wrecked. And then coming up on that in a rowboat yeah. is pretty, pretty did spectacular. The, did the
1: guy that jumped in the water have a life jacket on?
0: Probably. <laughs> I would hope so. I think so. They had, you well, know, the old life jackets like? were yeah. made of cork and, sure. and cloth. Um, I would imagine, may, maybe not. I don't know. I don't have a, a he must source have for that. But been a great swimmer. Yes. And he must have been pretty Rick. good at um, tolerating the cold.
1: Yes. Well, that's (laughs) incredible. Uh, Thanks again for sharing this story with everyone. I think the listeners are really going to love it.
0: Thank you so much, Katie. You're welcome. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. This podcast is made possible in great part because of generous contributions from our members and donors. To learn more about Egan Maritime's mission and to offer your support, visit our website, eganmaritime.org. Click on support or text the keyword maritime to 91999. And if you like what you hear, follow us on Instagram at Time and Tide Nantucket or our website, timeandtidenantucket.com. Until next time, fair winds and following seas.